discover themselves, discover their creative potential, you know, discover what direction they want to go in life, and then don't be afraid to change. All you want is someone to be you know, successful with what they want to do and not feel like they have to fill a pre-described role. Ronnie Hill is many things to many people. He has been a cornerstone of the Texas A&M College of Architecture since the 60s when he relocated from Berkeley, California to teach classes on creative thinking and future studies. Fast forward 50 years and many students later to a professor who has continually expanded young minds by fostering creativity, helping students find their design voice, and navigating a challenging degree. I thought what better way to explain what an environmental design degree is and what endless possibilities it offers than Rodney himself, and what a perfect introduction to the podcast as a whole. All right, friends, 10 Colleagues, 10 Years is a podcast series where I interview 10 of my colleagues from architecture school 10 years after graduating. We all went to Texas A&M University and received a degree from the College of Architecture, but ended up in drastically different places. This podcast is a celebration of what a non-traditional architecture degree offers for the skills that it teaches. It's 10 individual stories of navigating a career path that's meant to be inspirational. And when I personally started my own architecture practice earlier this year, I attribute some of my success to this kind of degree program. So I hope that you get the same sort of inspiration from these stories, and thanks for listening. I'm Heather Pogue, and this is 10 Colleagues, 10 Years. Hello. Oh, hi. It's been a zillion years. I know it has. You haven't aged at all. <laughs> Neither have you. <laughs> how are you? Great. Well, how are things up there? What are all you working on? Commercial, residential? I'm doing all of the above? both, yes. So I've done about every project type you can imagine over the years. I settled in on residential and really loved it. So. Oh, good. And then doing small commercials, so that keeps me agile. It's growing like crazy up there, isn't it? It is. There's cranes everywhere. Wow. So I heard you just got an endowment. Oh, well, they're establishing it. So students can get scholarships. That's Uh, exciting. Did you hear Forbes report on the size of Bryan College Station by 2050? I didn't. It will be the size that Austin is now. And 2050 is supposed to triple in size. That's amazing. San Antonio to Austin is also supposed to triple in size. We were just talking about the ranch, the architectural ranch, and our memories. That was just getting started when I was ending my time there. Okay, the architectural ranch deserves an explanation because it is magical. It's a place where anything can happen. The College of Architecture built a Butler building, which is a giant open warehouse 20 minutes outside of main campus. You could drive 60 miles an hour past flat farmlands and 20 minutes later turn down a long dirt road to arrive at the ranch. You'd find any tool imaginable to build anything your mind could invent. Personally, this space had a huge influence on me. My final studio professor at A&M had us write our own syllabus and commit to our own deadlines. I desperately wanted a change of scene. The last three and a half years of studio were sitting at a desk, mostly drawing, And I decided I wanted to work with my hands and be outside. And the ranch gave me that opportunity. So we were allowed to build anything we wanted. I was out there every weekend and almost every day that semester just building, building, building. And to this day, I love working with tools and building because of this experience. So I can't say enough how cool this space was. It used to be you drove out in the middle of nowhere. And I was thinking it's probably full of 
other buildings for the campus now. They're building a new campus out there called the Relis Campus. It'll house 26,000 students starting this fall. Oh, wow. That's pretty On amazing. top of the already 60,000 <laughs> <month> here. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to split off pretty soon, aren't they? Oh, I mean, it's really hard to drive around the campus or anywhere nowadays. You have to know all the back ways. Oh, yeah, I bet. <laughs> So I wanted to interview you because you're a legacy at the College of Architecture and everybody that I've talked to mentions you as being influential in their lives and, and time I there. Not to tell. <laughs> <laughs> and you've also been there a really long time. You'd be the best person to talk about what an environmental design degree is and distinguish it from a typical architecture degree. Okay. Actually, that's why I was hired by Romanek, the dean at the time. It was the first year of the environmental design program. At that point in time, you could either go the four-year environmental design or you could finish out the five years degree. And essentially, Romnick decided the old program was status quo, and he wanted somebody that could come in and shake it up and start a whole series of new things. Anyhow, that's essentially what I was hired for. And Stasel was department head at the time, and Alan Stasel was this super brilliant guy, but he essentially said the environmental design graduate should be someone that is creative, innovative, and can go in any direction. And it doesn't matter if they're an architect, furniture designer, filmmaker, or a taxi driver, as long as they're successful and happy and doing what they do. And uh, that was his philosophy, and he was department head for probably about 15 years, and he hired all the people and set everything in motion to go that direction. Do you know uh, where his vision came from for that? He was just a forward thinker, and he, he wasn't an architect. He actually was a painter and printmaker, and that's what Romnick wanted, somebody that thought differently, mm-hmm. not the standard architecture format. Prior to that, was it a Typical architecture degree then? Absolutely, five-year architecture degree. What skills are taught that are different than a traditional architecture degree? Well, it's heavy into uh, industrial design, tons of computer stuff, of course. Uh, We have a whole room that has nothing but 3D printing in it. And then they have the architectural ranch, which has everything, plasma cutters, concrete mixers, anything you want to make. You can go out to the architectural ranch. You can do furniture design. Uh, I had students doing a lot of furniture design. The new hullabaloo dorm uh, right across from the Dixie Chicken. Essentially, they cut down two dormitories there to build hullabaloo. Mm-hmm. The former students got really pissed because <laughs> they cut down all these trees. The resident live came over and said, what can we do? And I said, okay, slab them, kiln dry them. And then they hired six environmental design students in their senior year to do nothing but make furniture for the dorms, the public furniture, frames, mantle, the whole bit. And so they were out at the architectural ranch a lot. Yeah. So anyhow, it was very successful. What a great project. And then another thing you probably don't realize that we got into, which goes against most architecture curriculums, is we started about six years ago a thing called Startup Aggieland. It's a student incubation center on campus. And it was uh, started by the dean, myself, 
and three business profs. We met off campus every three weeks for breakfast so the upper administration wouldn't find out because it <laughs> screw everything up. And so one of the business guys helped the leases to the research park, and there was 5,000 square feet out there they'd let us have. So we turned that into a student incubation center. Any student or group that had ideas or businesses they were trying to incubate, they could go out there. And then I went up to Toronto to the World Future and presented it there. And turns out there was a guy from the Department of Commerce there who ran back and told Obama. Obama sent a letter to President Bowen saying, would you present Startup Agland at the White House? Wow. And he goes, what the? And <laughs> oh, no. You were found out. Looking around for disruptive faculty that don't <laughs> color within the lines and found us. And so uh, we supplied him with a complete presentation. He went up, presented it. And then came back saying, look what I did. And we went, yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> so in the last five years, we've launched $30 million in student businesses wow. through this uh, place. And mm. they have every millionaire former student online and what their field is. So when students come in or they have a business they're trying to get going, they look at the closest former students who come in and mm. show them how to launch the business. It's important to have the business skills. Yeah, and most architecture, including over half of our faculty, well, what has business got to do with architecture? Architecture's on the art farm. Yeah, business is everything. The more time I've spent out in the field, right. it's really important Marketing to have those skills. Yes, <laughs> yeah, and just figure out how things, how to connect the right people and... Right. A lot of why I wanted to do this podcast was actually finding inspiration in um, startup podcasts. There's a, yeah. a ton of really great entrepreneurial podcasts out there and not so great architectural ones. They just started the first podcast club here on campus. Oh, that's awesome. And I'm faculty advisor. <laughs> <laughs> As if you need another thing to right, work on. Right. <laughs> I don't know how you have time for it all. Right. It sounds like that it's continuing to evolve. Has that been something that's always been important to you to try and move it forward? Yeah, to let students go whatever direction they want to. You know, whatever their creative desire is and everything like that, you just sort of let them go. I mean, like all through the 90s, I hit most of the VIS students that were coming. There was no undergraduate VIS program. I would do 485s and things like that. Instead of them taking mechanical, electrical, you know, <laughs> and stuff like that, they would take things that were relating to the VIS program. Yeah. And then they got into the master's program. Then they finally established the VIS program. And now we even have an MFA. I've so, heard. Yeah, it's really great. Lots of artists coming in. I interviewed Stephanie Strickland from the VIS program. And, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to get someone from that program because it, it was kind of like the Wild West of it when, when we were sure. there because it was... It's kind of left to its own devices, and I've heard it's been more established now as like a oh, curriculum. It's established. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty much the number one in the world. I don't know, but no, she was before you, Michelle Robinson. She got the Oscar for Frozen. She was environmental design, and then Viz Masters. When I talk to people about this degree and that when they talk about people who are influential, one of the things that they talk about with you is that you were so creative and you really fostered 
their creativity and them being able to be themselves and to really discover their voice in design. And I think that's uh, something that you brought to the table. And a lot of the people have fond memories of taking your independent study because that was the class that they brought a prompt to you maybe or you helped them figure something out that suited them. Do you still have time to do the independent studies? The independent study has turned into uh, Environmental Design 101. I've got 184 honor students in the class. It's the only class that honors allows above 25 on campus. They sign a non-disclosure statement to get in the class. Then every other week, each individual has to come up with an original innovation or product that has to be patent searched. Then I put them in groups of six. All six have different majors. It's split male-female gender. And then I quietly don't tell them I pick the captain, which is always a female, because I know it'll get done. (laughs) And you don't have any macho guys trying to herd the group one way or the other. Then the groups every other week have to come up with something. Their last project they do in there is they have to look at a product, a service, or a system that exists in the world. Then they have to create another one that makes it obsolete. So that's fun. And then they're entering some international competitions. And then their May's uh, business school has a competition. uh, And they give out about $20,000 in prizes. That class gets, there's 300 entries. They hone it down to 60. And we get about 25% of the finalists that go in out of that class. But it's the whole thing on creative thinking, you know, problem solving, a lot of future studies in there now, heavy into the futures. You've kind of always had that leaning. Where did that come from? Was that something you learned at your time at Berkeley? Yeah, I taught the first futures class at Berkeley as a teaching assistant. The World Futures Society had met in San Francisco. The students said, we demand the futures class. (laughs) And the dean said, you're the only one crazy enough. So I taught the futures class for two quarters there before I came to A&M. I probably have given about 20 talks at the World Future Conference. Next month, I'll be doing a thing with the Air Forces coming here, and they're wanting to look at 2030 and above, what they should be doing, and they have different categories. I'll be doing the futures part of that. Also, uh, teaching at the medical school, a short course for the last two years. It's two weeks in the spring between breaks, but it's on the future of medical technology. So I have first-year medical students actually in groups, too, also trying to create new medical devices and procedures. Wow. You ended up in medical field and the business school. and Yeah, they had me on their faculty at the medical school. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I just don't know how you do it all. It's a lot. What do you hope that students ultimately come away with that you end up teaching? Oh, discover themselves, discover their creative potential, you know, discover what direction they want to go in life, and then don't be afraid to change. All you want is someone to be, you know, successful with what they want to do and not feel like they have to fill a pre-described role. So what percentage would you say come out of the program and do traditional architecture and then those that go off and do something totally different but design-related? I think a lot of them go off. I 
guess we see a lot come back here for graduate school, but they're going to graduate school everywhere. There's two people, Dan Provost mm-hmm. and Tom Gerhardt. You remember that? Yes, yes. I actually grew up with them in Round Rock, Texas before oh, A&M. Oh, we all went to high school together. Yeah. Oh, so you know about their website. Yes. All the stuff they're doing. Yes. I, I get him to come and speak to the class every now and then. Oh, that's great. Like innovation and future studies. But he's really good. It's that sort of thing. Like, they both got an ED degree, and they went filmmaking and industrial design. When I was thinking about people to interview, a lot of them were not architects. It was actually harder to find architects. And that's the point of the podcast is to talk about how the degree gets you ready for almost anything. If you're a creative strategist and can think like a designer, you have a lot of opportunities. It's design thinking. Exactly. Our students are really in demand with a lot of the uh, different little startup things around campus. And when our students come in, they end up going from group to group and showing them how to do websites, you know, how to create their logos. And yet the students are desperate in other majors because they don't have any direction. We get calls all the time. Can you please encourage some of your students to come over? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm interviewing a woodworker, a ceramicist. Someone who's doing aquaponics, real estate, it runs the gamut of people. So Who's doing aquaponics? Nagel Hout. Oh, yeah, sure. His dad owned a millworking company right, for right. years, and they finally sold that and are doing aquaponics. So they bought a farm out in Bastrop, oh, and really? they've got three greenhouses, and they're starting to bring tilapia. And I think by the time I visit, I'll be going down in July. So they should have the three... Oh, neat. Greenhouse is up and running with lettuce and tilapia. Great. So besides his uh, real estate, yes. he's doing that? Yes. I didn't know he was doing that. Yeah, I think he's uh, probably phasing out real estate here coming okay. up. So he's trying to take on less clients so that he has time for this. But I thought one of the cool things was I never realized it's systems thinking. So it's really thinking about the large-scale farming and kind of an engineering mind to be able to – Think about the holistic process. I have to connect him up with the HEB architect, mm-hmm. who's also an ED student. Is that Leslie Brooks? Yeah, we were trying to tell her that what a PR it would be mm-hmm. if they started building HEBs that had vertical farms on top of them oh, or yeah. incorporated in. You know, that'd be a huge promotional thing. Oh, that would be awesome. Getting her and Chris connected would be good. This is a big deal in Texas. It's the grocery store, especially in Central Texas. It's named after Harold E. Butts. The family store had its humble beginnings in Kerrville, Texas, just southwest of San Antonio, and has since expanded all over Texas. And Texans love their HEBs. Even I miss HEBs since we don't have those in the Pacific Northwest. And then there's uh, an ED student, can't forget her name right now, Yopon T. Have you ever heard of that? Yopon, no. Okay, it's a Native American tea that's been around for centuries. They actually used it in the Civil War all the time. They did some research in it, and it's marketed all over the U.S. now. And it's Cat Springs Yopon Tea. I had her come talk to the class. That's great. Well, then, as you know, my husband, Andrew, went through the program in Viz, and he's starting a brewery. That's something that is also a really big system to figure out. And you said he hadn't found a space yet? Real estate has been tough. I'm sure it's coming, <laughs> but I'll be designing their tasting room. Yeah. That's going to be fun. 
Is he still doing a lot of photography? He is. He's going to keep his clients that he enjoys working with. But he would like to stay in it. And I think it would be good. I would be sad if he totally abandoned photography because I think he's so talented at it. Oh, yeah. Do y'all ever get down this way? Uh, We don't as much. We get to Austin sometimes. I did want to ask about uh, if Maffy and Ferry are still there. Okay. Ferry retired about two years ago. He's getting around. He needs some help every now and then. He sold his or gave his folk art collection to a museum at Beaumont that's doing a Latin American folk art thing. He's got a ton of money in his uh, family background. His dad had nine Cadillac Oldsmobile Chevrolet dealerships between South and North Carolina. Wow, okay. So anyhow, <laughs> he has someone driving down into Mexico, and they have certain spots they go to, and the dealers assemble the best of the folk art for him to pick over. He was in the hospital a few times getting recovery. The hospitals here are pretty lax. <laughs> we couldn't find anybody at the reception, so we just found our way into his room, and we could easily, you know, fix his... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, he's back and looking good. We saw him about a month ago. Okay, Macy's teaching halftime. He's teaching the graduate transition people that are going for the three-year masters. Those were the other two influential people that were mentioned probably the most by the yeah. students I interviewed. As you know, Rodney uh, Hill, John Ferry, and Gerald Matthew were right, key right. people in my time there. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> everyone else is disappeared (laughs) they've gone on right you're holding down the fort trying to keep it wild keep the department heads pulling their hair out fortunately our dean is wild man which is great he (laughs) teaches my course too so he does it for all the non-honors and actually when he was at georgia tech he taught a roughly a creativity class there and their architecture car he's really good yeah you've got support yeah and what's his name? Jorge Venegas. He was there when I was there, but yeah, he wasn't the yeah. dean. No, really good. Okay. And I wish I would have taken a class from him while I was there. Well, I appreciate your time. I oh, sure. Busy. Well, it's great to see you and talk to you. Yeah. Say hello to everybody for me. I will, yes, yeah. I just wish I had kept a diary before social networks. I just think all the students I could blackmail. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm always amazed you remember everybody. Oh, (laughs) you have so many students. I acted like a priest to come and confide. (laughs) Probably the worst one was two students came in. It was in sophomore design. And the last week and a half, I signed, make a happening on campus, anything. Then they were to present it. A couple went and got in the then movable trash cans around campus, and when people would throw it in, they'd go, ouch, no, stop that, and <laughs> would follow them in the little trash can. One of them did poetry and strung it down from the Centrio. Uh, people would walk by that drop poems down for them to read. Yeah. And then these two guys who were in the core came up and said, we can't tell you what we did or we'd get kicked out of school. Yeah. And so I said, well, you come back to my office and so anyhow they'd gotten a little boozy and they went out and bought a whole bunch of red and blue spray paint oh no this was friday next night was a saturday night game they went over to kyle field 
skimming up the light poles, sprayed all the light things like American flags. <laughs> and the police came in, shined their lights down, never up. Oh. <laughs> and they partially made it down without falling to their deaths, went back to the room and passed out. So the next day they got up about 10 and everyone was saying, oh my God, police are at every street corner inspecting every car that's going off campus, looking at the trucks. And they were hunting for spray cans. And so they didn't move their cars for two weeks. The next day, the band was out practicing. One of the band members looked up and saw the American flag. They had maintenance up there trying to scrub it off, and they couldn't do it fast enough. So they had to go to Houston and get $10,000 worth of light bulbs and replace all of them Uh before the game. So they kept their mouths shut. (laughs) That would be a big confession. (laughs) Right. Well, I'll never forget my freshman studio I had with you. There was another woman and I, Alexa Tang, if you remember her. Yeah. Her and I wanted to paint a mural on the wall. And I remember we asked you permission to paint it. And you just said, don't ask, just do it. <laughs> and, right. if, and if you look like you know what you're doing, no one's going to ask you or think That's any true. different. So we painted this giant mural on the wall. And I came back and visited a few years later. It was still there. But eventually, I think they painted over it. They painted over everything, (laughs) which is too bad. Yeah. Well, it's always evolving. It's another blank canvas for somebody else to come and paint a mural on. (laughs) So I'll never forget that. It was just the first time I was thinking, oh, ask permission later. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody will know. Yeah. (laughs) Did that with one of the uh, faculty members that was, you would have missed him. Grant Harsley, but he had open heart surgery. So I went up to try to visit. He had two living relatives. Each one was a thousand miles away. They wouldn't let anybody in to see him because it was intensive care. So I had gone to Houston and I stopped at a Catholic shop and I bought a priest shirt. (laughs) And I came back, put a big cross on, black, and carried a Bible up to Father Hill to see Graham Harsley. So they announced me and he was trying to keep from laughing because he was pitched. Up and it hurt like hell to laugh. And you had to take your tie off for that, right? Wear a giant cross and have a priest collar. <laughs> oh, that's hysterical. That was something you always had too, was the tie or the bow tie. You always have a right, funny right, a fun, right. vibrant tie on. Right. Yeah. So, True. Yeah, yeah. You dress for success. Right, exactly. <laughs> and I'm a about the only one on our faculty that wears a tie. I bet that's changed a lot over the years. They started wearing all black, everyone. So they went to this faculty meeting they had. So for all grins, I put on all black, and I'd found on eBay a fake pearl tie, you know, that was all pearl. So I put that on and wore it in, and they had this puzzled look, and I said, well, what else do you wear with basic black? It's classy. They were insulted. (laughs) (laughs) The horn rim glasses, too. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) I will say I've been guilty of, I thought I would never wear all black. I wear black a lot. I just like it. Very northwest of me. Very Seattle, too. Oh, definitely. The great days. Did y'all ever run across Brian Kralovich up there? No. The vice president of Amazon? No. He's in Seattle. He was with a firm up there in Seattle, and they were working on a project for Microsoft. I guess they were having beers or something, Mm. and they were saying, we can't get this thing to work, da-da-da-da-da-da. This was in the 90s. And so he essentially designed the Xbox, and then Bestis hired him to come to Amazon, did the Echo and Kindle, and Mm. he's got a big team. you know. And he generally tries to hire architects because of the design thinking. 
I went to uh, the building where they designed the Xbox on Microsoft campus. We had to do a little uh-huh. project. Yeah, so I went in and did some as-built measurements, you know, to document. Uh-huh. It was a top-secret space, though. A lot of those spaces you need yes. a badge for because right. they don't want anyone divulging right. their secrets. True. Yeah, they can't even email out. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of Aggies I have yet to meet. I'm sure there's a lot in Seattle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we can get a list for you. <laughs> That'd be great, yeah. And I was actually going to ask you, too, um, this podcast, I wanted it to be inspirational for a a variety of audiences, just having these stories told for people that found their way, their path through their career. And one of the big audiences I see is students trying to figure out what they want to do. Maybe we can keep talking about a way to get this into the... Maybe it's the podcast club or something like that, but I'd love to have A&M distribute it okay well i can email the president of the pod class yeah get y'all both connected with your emails yeah that'd be great i'm hoping to do uh post-production through june and then do you remember seth brunner sure he's doing my jingle he's gonna put together the soundtrack and then layer that on and trying to pitch it to some media outlets seth is a character he is yeah I was pulling up into H-E-B. There was the, for 55 and older parking. <laughs> Seth pulled, didn't he have a Jeep? And the 55 and older, and got out. <laughs> and I said, I think I'm going to have to card you. <laughs> <laughs> Seth probably wasn't paying attention. He probably well, didn't like, even know. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe it wasn't a Jeep. It was a big uh, lifted, the smaller Suburbans. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> With big wheels. You could barely get up and sit in it. Now, Alexia, isn't she in Dallas? She actually moved to Chicago. Chicago? Yes. She definitely stopped doing architecture after a few years, and she ended up being marketing for Garrett Popcorn. It's good to connect with everybody, too. I think one of the best things about the degree is the closeness you get with your colleagues, and the studio environment really cultivates that. And it's this great respect I have for everybody. And there was this competitive spirit, but it was always this very respectful, oh, and you're yeah. still friends. It wasn't very, it wasn't cutthroat competitive. It was just very um, respectful, like criticism from people. Right. And right. Um, I think I'm always inspired seeing what everybody's doing, and I follow everybody's work now that social media makes it so easy to stay connected. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like to see what everyone's doing, and it's been good to connect. And if I could, I would interview everybody. Oh yeah, it would be fun. I narrowed it down to 10s. Well, if you need contacts for any of them, let me know, because we can usually, through the former students, get emails. Yeah, I will. I'm hoping to package this up and see how it goes. Yeah, it'd be fun to... I mean, they were all characters. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, Carlos is now at uh, Norman Foster's office. Oh, great. Yeah, so he's in New York, and he went to RISD for grad school, Rhode Island School of Design, and then... Ended up working for Robert Stern for five years, and now he's oh, at wow. Norman Foster. Right. So he was my star architect of the bunch. Oh, neat, neat, neat. Yeah. Yeah, and then Candace Wong started her firm in Austin. Yeah. So I interviewed her kind of to mirror me, like tell a story similar to mine, but without me having to tell it. You know? Right. Well, hopefully, you know, I've done the traditional route for 10 years. and. Yeah. I, but my hope with this firm is that I can do things like this podcast or do more writing or have more space for right, other right. things than architecture. 
design-related things and things that I find fascinating. Well, the thing when you graduated was just as the recession hit. Yes. At that point in time, there were no schools of architecture that had anything to do with global marketing or anything. We started the first course here and global ethics, culture, and practice. And it's grown to 144 in the class. 80% of them are business majors that take it, which is funny. Yeah, it is funny. <laughs> but it, the whole thing was the architects that were treading water had 50% of their work global. So it was get into practicing globally and all the things you encounter with different cultures. But that's a fun class. I remember when that was instigated after I left. I think it's a good idea. And same with like diversifying, not just doing architecture. Right. But being able to ride out a recession, but doing yeah. other things. You can have your own business online and still work full time. <laughs> well, like Candace is doing uh, cat toys. She's designing. Really? Yes. <laughs> so she's got a product line in addition to her architecture firm that you can have your hand in many different pots. And how's your wife doing? I wanted to ask. Oh, great. She's still out practicing physical therapy. Carving anything lately? No, nope. haven't carved anything in a year and a half. I was in Singapore where my daughter was and uh, was feeling kind of sluggish. So my wife took my pulse and it was down to 38. <gasps> oh, goodness. <laughs> so daughter came along and I didn't realize Singapore is a medical mecca. So anyhow, she ran us over to her doctor who, uh, this was four in the afternoon. At eight in the morning, I was seeing a uh, a Cambridge and a Harvard-trained cardiologist who wired me for a day. Mm -hmm. And the following day, I was on the operating table and had a pacemaker. Mm -hmm. So everything's perfect. Nothing's wrong. Okay. But I just can't be around anything magnetic. So I can hand carve, but I can't use it if I were doing any words. And I just finished doing all the sketches for the law school that A&M has. You can imagine with the lawyers, the entire thing was practically words. <laughs> yes. It was like... There was no way I could do it. Yeah. So I just gave them the designs and drawing. So good luck. Okay. So you came up with the design, and then they're going to yeah. have somebody else make it. And I also did it for the new band hall and had to do the same thing. Fortunately, a former student in uh, D.C. likes to woodwork. He's working on it now. I know that that was an important thing about Chris Nagelhout and Bob Turek, the, yeah. the two woodworkers in my story. uh Having right. you as a professor and connecting on that level was really important to them and right. getting to take some independent studies where they got to explore more of that small scale. I think people that I talk to really appreciate also the small scale taught in the ED degree. Just yeah. getting into like the product design or the furniture level of design where you can think about all the aspects of it rather than it always being architecture where you're thinking about a lot more. Um, I think people really enjoyed getting to focus on the details. Well, there's some fourth-year studios now that you can take that are product design studios. You can go that direction. And we have two faculty members from Iran that are fabulous, that are masters of 3D printing and all sorts of things. Then there's a course now on industrial design. Great. History and product design. You can take an option and go in that direction. At least it's loosened up to to that. It loosened up and then it got tied again. <laughs> it's loosened up again. 
It's good direction. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. Great to talk to you. Good to talk to you too. I'll uh, I'll keep you posted on the okay. when I wrap it up. Go have a few beers with Andrew. <laughs> Sounds good, yeah. But if we do make it over that way, I'll let you know. Please do. Yeah. House is open bar. Oh, thank you. Yeah. All right. Look forward to it. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye, Rodney. It's refreshing to find a professor like Rodney who is so pro-student. He's a professor who wants to foster creativity and ownership within every student, knowing that it's truly invaluable and a far greater skill than any actual technical skill you would get in architecture school. I think it's a large reason why A&M's program is so successful with their students. They're able to find flexibility within their careers, and Rodney's story is a great introduction to the following stories you'll hear on the podcast. 10 interviews of 10 colleagues that graduate from the same program and carved themselves a career over the last 10 years. No path is the same, but every path owes part of its success to a professor or mentor like Rodney Hill. So stay tuned and listen to the following 10 episodes of what it's like to navigate a career path.